Hi, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of Mary and Wanda. I'm Allie. And I'm Andy. <laughs> Can you believe it's the end of May? Almost. No. Ended. I prefer not to think about it, quite frankly. <laughs> yeah. Oh, man. We actually did not have that crazy of a week last week. Oh, really? Yeah. We're, we had one healthy week, so that's good. <laughs> we were, it reminds me of, like, you know, when you see in movies or whatever, when there's, like, a like a distribution center or a warehouse or something, and they mark how many days since the last incident. Yeah. Like, like, I need to start keeping a tally at our house. Like, how many days since the last sickness? <laughs> you should. Yeah. Do yourself a little whiteboard. Yeah. That'd be uh, funny. Yeah. yeah, I worked downtown today, and... That's about it. <laughs> Thrilling. What's going on? Um, well, I saw today for the first time that there are flowers on one of my tomato plants, which I'm very excited about, which means I might actually get some tomatoes sometime soon. Is it true that it always flowers before it um, produces a vegetable or a fruit or whatever you're growing? Yeah, it comes from the flower. The flower has to get pollinated, and then that turns into whatever's growing. Gotcha. Well, cool. So, that's I saw that today, and I got very, very excited. <laughs> um, unfortunately, my nephew is doing bad again. He's got another double ear infection. Mm, yeah. Which is sad for him. He's, he's very teary, is what I hear. Yeah. Rosie, um, I took her late last week for... A consultation for her to get tubes in her ears and so she's doing that in like two weeks oh really yeah i mean as long as my insurance ends up accepting it um yeah because yeah. they said they they base it on like i don't know the exact number and maybe it's different for each pediatrician but ours said if she had like a certain number of ear infections within a six-month period, then she would be a good candidate to get tubes. So she okay. met that requirement for sure. Okay. Yeah. Well, that'll be in two weeks, but they said it's a super quick procedure, and Adam and I both had tubes, and we were fine. Well, I hope she is too. Yeah. I asked the, the doctor, I said, is the is the actual procedure of install installing is not the right word but installing the tubes now much different than it was like 25 30 years ago because that's when adam and i would have had it done Mm -hmm. he was like no it's basically the same process just the tubes now are made with a little bit higher quality material but yeah same process you don't (laughs) still have tubes in your ears right you had them taken back out no eventually they fall out when your ear grows um the whole i guess gets bigger or whatever but supposedly they fall out and yeah you don't really even like notice them Hmm. yeah I don't know or maybe they dissolve who knows interesting yeah wow yep that's it well I hope he feels better yeah me too yeah that's rough on the parents too yeah that's what Kate was saying he like doesn't sleep all that much he said Last night, he was just laying in his crib staring at the ceiling for the longest time, and she ended up falling asleep before he did. (laughs) (laughs) Poor guy. So, for this month, I picked the book Black Cake by Charmaine Wilkerson. Mm -hmm. And I have to say, this is probably my favorite book that I've picked, especially since it was 
pretty much at random. Yeah, I have to say this was a really good choice. Yeah. <laughs> it's a great job. <laughs> this one, I actually did do a little bit of research on it before picking it, but mostly just like scrolling through um, the NPR list and like, because mm-hmm. I figured if it's on there, it's probably pretty good. But just like narrowing yeah. down what I wanted to pick. And then I knew it had a broad theme of traveling and family, but that was about it. Yeah. We've been doing a lot of family things. It's very, yeah. very interesting theme yeah. that we have going on here. Yeah. <laughs> but so Charmaine Wilkerson, this was her first novel and she published it in February of 2022. Mm-hmm. But she also, she was primarily a journalist and wrote short stories which i didn't realize that and maybe we should pick her for our next short story yeah uh, actually yeah i was thinking about that because well i figured we're trading on and off right and i was like well maybe i should do her but i also like can't find it's just weird because like the wikipedia page for her doesn't have a list of the short stories it only has mentions for novel um and so i i just like have to refine my google search but uh, it wasn't as easy to find as i thought it would be I wonder if her short stories have been published or if that's just like the the area that she's written in mostly. They have been. They've been published okay. in a couple of anthologies and um, a few online journals or whatever. Mm-hmm. But I think that it's not been. So the things that we, we've read so far have been from collections by the author. And I think that it's not like one collection by her. I think her stories appear in like a collection of multiple authors. Uh, gotcha. Okay. So I think that might be affecting it, but yeah. that's just speculation on my part. So Charmaine is from New York and she attended, do you think it's pronounced Barnard or Barnard College? I think it's Barnard College. That's what I was leaning toward too. Barnard College for undergrad and then Stanford for grad school. She also has lived in Jamaica and she currently lives in Rome, Italy where she wrote most of this book yeah she's lived there for like two decades now or something so good for her yeah a well-traveled lady yes (laughs) and her mother has jamaican roots and describes hold on oh she describes her family as multicultural yeah and did you listen to any interviews with her no, I read her author notes in the back of the book and a little bit like the biography about her. And then I read some about her on her website. Okay. Um, I listened to a book report network interview on YouTube and she has what is best described as like a British accent, which is just okay. very weird because she never lived in like London or anything. Hmm. Uh, but I, wonder- I think... Yeah, that well, is interesting. Yeah, because she's from New York. I was gonna say no, yeah, so she's from New York. I don't I don't understand it. Anyway. But also if just... she lived in Italy for two decades, I would think she'd almost have picked up more of like an Italian English accent. Does she doesn't really sound Italian to me. I don't know. Hmm. Go listen to her and see what you think. Yeah. So yeah, this was her first novel and it was on Barack Obama's favorite books of twenty two twenty twenty two along with other books that we've read, Sea of Tranquility, and I think George Saunders was on there too, but not a book that we've read. Hmm. So yeah, his uh, favorite books of 2022 list is also aligning with what seems to be some of our favorites so far. 
Oh, in a shocking turn of events, Barack Obama has good taste. Yeah. (laughs) You could have seen this coming. And this book has also become a New York Times bestseller and won UK Indie Book of the Month. And I don't really know much more about that recognition (laughs) other than that's what it is. Yeah. And one thing that I saw that was super cool is that this book, it's so new, but it's already been um, starting to be turned into uh, a TV show by Oprah. And Hmm. there's been filming spotted around UK already by multiple people. So, like, it's already in the works. And I think, I don't know, like, how quickly when a new book comes out, if it goes to a movie, how quick that turnaround is. But that seems pretty quick to me. I think it can depend on how hyped up the book is in, like, yeah. the publishing world, but mm-hmm. um, it does seem pretty quick. Well, I guess it came out in, like, what? Oh, 2022? Yeah. I don't know. Probably, but yeah. Like, just over a year ago. But I would think that, I mean, unless maybe they sold the the rights to have it turned into a movie or a TV show before it really gained much popularity... Yeah, but, I mean, yeah, they do do that if it's a, hyped up in, like, the actual yeah. publishing world. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm not sure how all that came about. But, yeah, it's being turned into a TV show, and it will be on Hulu. I don't know what it's called yet. It might be called Black Cake, or it might not. <laughs> I think it's going to be called Black Cake. Probably. Um, and then one other thing I saw on her website is that the cover art for the UK publishing versus the US publishing are totally different. Did you see what the UK one looks like? No, but now I want to. It's on her website. She's got them side by side. The US one is really pretty. It's like an abstract woman's face with lots of rainbow colors. The one in the UK is just like a spoon and three like stripes in the background. (laughs) It doesn't show. Oh, oh. All right. Like, I don't know who was in charge of doing that UK cover art but they missed the mark a little bit <laughs> in my opinion oh. the u.s one is really pretty yeah i like ours <laughs> but so one thing that i really enjoyed about this book in particular was the writing style um i have a very short attention span and i also like if i'm reading a book and it's got chapters that are like 40 pages long man it seems like it goes by much slower for me anyway but Mm -hmm. this one I liked that her writing style you got so many different points of view from different characters and a lot of times it was just like a quick scene sometimes like only a half a page long of just a little blurb about one of the characters lives and I thought that was really cool that she would like switch back and forth between different characters points of view just to get a little glimpse of what they thought about whatever situation they were in yeah i enjoyed that did you uh, so no you didn't listen to an interview so i'm guessing you did not hear her talk <laughs> about her writing style um but she calls this flash flash fiction mm-hmm. and she says it's really feeling based so she'll have like a feeling about something and have some thoughts about it and she'll just go write down an individual scene or story um, and then go from there and so she had actually written the first story that she wrote that um, ends up in the book is about two young women who are very strong swimmers and they're sort of fearless and they go swimming out in um, the sea, even under like rough conditions, which is of course um, Covey and Bunny from our story. Mm-hmm. 
And so she wrote that. And then soon after she had written about a young woman who earns extra money by dressing up in animal costumes, Mm -hmm. (laughs) which is of course, um, Covey's daughter, uh, Benny. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, um, she like she wrote all these individual short stories and then she began to see that they were more or less connected so mm-hmm. um yeah that it, was one thing i noticed is that like even though they were short little blurbs th- it all connected well it flowed well to make the story seem complete yes and i think that something that authors can fall into sort of like a little pitfall is assuming that you have a better memory of the characters than your readers actually do mm-hmm. um and I think that, I don't know, maybe I just also have a short attention span or not a good strong attention to detail, um, which is definitely true because I've told you that like sometimes I skip from dialogue to dialogue when I read yeah. and don't really <laughs> notice. So like that checks out. But the way that she did it, she always had just enough detail in the explanation of the characters, like where she would have a chapter that I think like one of Marvel's second chapters um she just like mentioned a couple words that referenced the first story that she had told about her so that you knew immediately to connect it back to that one yeah and sort of like fill in the details and she did that continuously so it wasn't so much as standalone um like points of view it was very much so connected in the way she writes yeah i enjoyed that a lot Mm -hmm. so the next source that i found was i think it's alicia's pepperpot.com and i wanted to get a little bit more understanding of what a black cake actually is so i had to look up some pictures of it mm-hmm. and for those that haven't read the book it's essentially a version of a fruit cake but more it's a it's a dense texture dark dark in color and rich and robust in taste and it has a lot of fruits in it that are soaked in rum and port specifically for long periods of time like dried fruits not like slices of apple like raisins and um dried prunes and whatnot yeah it says most of the time it's prunes currants raisins i think that's supposed to say glazed cherries yeah and a couple of the recipes i looked at had both golden raisins and regular raisins in them and it seems like it kind of depends on um what your family and what your recipe is uh the author mentioned that her mom likes to put in citron or citron and the author did not enjoy that so she leaves it out of her cakes yeah i remember that point that's funny Mm -hmm. yep and so then it's it had kind of a I guess it was kind of whatever your preference was, but I know it said that sometimes she would soak um, soak the fruits for like months at a time. And I think it said at one point she even soaked them for a whole year. Mm-hmm. But I think in today's time, if you were making it, you could probably do it for like maybe a couple of weeks and still get a similar result or I don't know, maybe less than that. <laughs> yeah. And it depends on how you do it too. So if you like cook them, like um like simmer them for a little while in in the rum and port um you can do it and sort of infuse the flavor a little bit faster that way but like in general i think a few weeks to like a month is a good idea so i was actually going to get some fruits like now and soak them for a little while and then like make it when um like for the fourth of july or something i don't know (laughs) um usually this is a 
a cake that's enjoyed around Christmas or weddings, but hey, 4th of July, close enough. <laughs> it's like a wedding. <laughs> Might as well be. <laughs> but yeah, it's also similar to like a plum pudding. Wilkerson calls it a rum pudding. Uh, yeah. So that's kind of what I was picturing was like the American style of a fruitcake, but also like soaked in rum and port and yeah, with lots of other spices and flavors added to it also. Yeah, and I think one of the key differences between, I think, a black cake and, um, say, one of, like, a traditional Christmas pudding from um, the UK is that the black cake has um, dark brown sugar and molasses in it. And then it also has, um, compared to, like, essentially sugar in the raw, if you've seen that, like, unrefined Mm -hmm. sugar. So it's a little bit darker than white sugar um, Mm -hmm. that they put in the UK. Um, But then also, do you remember in the story when she was describing how her uh, mom would essentially, like, almost burn brown sugar on the stove and make it really, really black? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, Wilkerson um, says that for the longest time when she was making her mom's recipe, she could never get it black enough. And so Mm -hmm. her cakes always turned out a little bit too brown, but, like, they should really be very, very dark in color. Um, and I think that's one thing that makes it stand out as sort of a Caribbean cake instead of a the UK's version. Mm-hmm. I also read that a lot of times when somebody first sees a black cake, they assume it's just a chocolate cake because that's how dark it is. <laughs> yeah, I believe yeah. it. I looked at some pictures. It looks really good. I'm excited to try and make it. Yeah, hopefully you'll have good luck with that because I would definitely mess it up. <laughs> well, I, it shouldn't be that hard. The um, I listened to a podcast where some ladies were talking about this. Scared to try and make a black cake because they were, had to boil it, and that's honestly one of the easiest things to do because you just like cover the um, like a glass bowl with your pudding in it in foil and just like put it in a pot and let it simmer for a while. So <laughs> it seems like it's daunting, but I think the hardest part is actually the. Um, like very, very um, almost burnt dark brown sugar that you make to give it its color. And so then it's also topped with an almond paste icing. Have you ever made almond paste icing? I have not. That's actually, I think, going to be the hardest part. Yeah. I I don't know that I've ever eaten almond paste or had like an icing that was made with, with almonds. I don't know. Mm-hmm. I liked that uh, Cubby's mom, Matilda, and Pearl had a cake business together mostly for weddings where per I think it was Pearl would make the cake and then Matilda yeah. would make the flowers and they were so like intricate and beautiful yeah she, was, she did not like making lilac colored ones <laughs> yeah and I like that that was sort of the signal on the wedding day well my assumption was that Pearl was going to put like the poison in there and that's why she made it colored lilac to be like yep, don't eat these flowers too. yeah um, even though she ended up losing the poison uh, temporarily. Yeah. But um, I like that too. And I really like the way that this book deals with food and how you were like learning the recipe from your family. And I think that this is something we've talked about before, how we um, think that like family recipes, we're always missing a level of detail. Mm-hmm. And that's what we get um, when Benny, we see the same thing in the book when Benny pulls out her mom's black cake recipe and it's, there's like a list of ingredients and then it's just like go with your soul um, yeah, you should have learned had, from your mother yeah it had no quantities on it <laughs> yeah like learn from your mother like you should know how to make this mm-hmm. and, and i vague terms like mix <laughs> <laughs> huh. 
And I, I like that a lot. I love looking at food as a way to connect with people in our family, like both from the past and, you know, in the future, whatever, mm-hmm. um, and across distances. Like that makes me very happy. Um, yeah. About- I love it, Benny, like a lot of her, the recipes that she was wanting to have in her concept cafe were like from her family's traditions and like food that, like you said, she made with her mom. Whereas Marvel, she's also in the food industry, but hers is much more of like a an objective stance, I think, where she looks at recipes or food in general from almost like a bird's eye view. Like she doesn't mm-hmm. have much of a personal connection to it because mm-hmm. she didn't know her mom, Eleanor slash Covey, whatever you want to call her, um, growing up and having those experiences that Benny got to have. Yeah, and it seems like, yeah, Marble is very much so parsing apart, like, each individual ingredient and being like, see, this is how our cultures all blend together. And, you know, like, got this spice from over here. We got this dried fruit from over here. You know, without all of these connections, we wouldn't have this recipe. And I liked that a lot. I <laughs> was just thinking when I was uh, reading this book that I would really like Marble to be a real person. Um <laughs> She's, I actually do follow, not follow, I watch um, this YouTube series called Tasting History, which is kind of like that. It's a guy who does research about individual dishes and how they were like enjoyed or whatever, and then also makes it, and it's like a wide range of stuff. So he does do a Christmas pudding, but then he also does like hard tack and a million other recipes. Um, yeah. Highly recommend that. Think about with Marvel and Benny is how, um, this is like the sort of the idea of nature versus nurture and um, how they had the same mother and they sort of ended up enjoying the same, um, like enjoying food in the same way and using it as a way to connect to people. Yeah. I thought that was a nice touch. Mm -hmm. And then they were able to bond over that once they actually met each other. Yeah. At one point, I can't remember what it was exactly, but Benny and Marvel were standing in the kitchen, like I think looking at a recipe and Byron comes in and they don't even like realize he's there at first because they're so engrossed in this conversation they're having with each other. Yeah. I think that I think it was the black cake recipe and they were um, snacking on some of the fruit from the mm-hmm. the jar. Yeah. Which I also really like the idea of is having like a legacy jar of <laughs> fruits that you've been refilling and soaking in rum for forever. I don't know. That sounds kind of gross to me, but <laughs> I love it. I mean, I also really love that she has her, like, mom and grandma's plastic measuring cup that they all used just for black cake. Mm-hmm. Uh, that makes me really happy. I've got, like, a couple of my grandma's old kitchen stuff, mm-hmm. and it always makes me happy when I use her rolling pin. Really love the theme of food in this book, I have to say. So um, one of the other big themes in this book, um, really, it's... To me, it's a book about families and family dynamics and the way they sort of change over time and how you choose different families. Um, yeah, yeah. And it gave us a good look into those dynamics. And the yeah. first one that we see is um, on the unnamed Caribbean island between Covey, her mom, Lynn, and Pearl. And I really liked their little family dynamic. I also thought just for the briefest amount of time that the mom Matilda was going to be Benny's mom. And that was going to be the connection. Not that Covey was going to end up being the mom. Mm. 
That was just the previous amount of time. I thought Covey was going to be the sister the whole time. So I, I did too. And I think they, I think Charmaine probably wanted you to think that at first because it didn't give a whole lot of background at that point. Mm-hmm. And at that point, all we knew is that the recording from Benny and Byron's mother was like, you don't know about your sister. And then it starts talking about this girl named Covey who grew up on this island. And so I think, I think she wanted you to think at first that Covey was going to be the sister. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. But I really enjoyed the the part of the story with them on this island and seeing how Covey and Bunny grew up together, that they were basically like sisters, even though they weren't. Um, mm-hmm. And that Pearl was basically a stand-in mom for Covey and sometimes even Bunny since Matilda left and Mr. Lynn was not that great of a caretaker or provider. <laughs> great (laughs) spend all of their money at the cockfights yeah uh no i was really disappointed in lynn and i know that so that was said in like the 60s right so i know that that was a bit of a different time particularly for women particularly for women of color but Mm -hmm. i tell you he was annoying Yeah. yeah i did not like him either and at the very end when he almost kind of like the way he says it almost seems like he's having a pity party when he's like, I had no other choice and I lost my daughter. Byron's like, are you kidding me? Like you didn't lose her. You sold her. Yeah. You didn't have another choice. You guys, I don't know. Could have left. There's like so many other ones other than selling your daughter to satisfy your debts. Yeah. Yeah. The, The entire time he was aware of how bad they were. And I do get, um, that was supposed to feel some sympathy for him because um, he's like the only Asian man that is in this town. But overall, he is not a very sympathetic character. And I kind of wish he had died too pretty early, like maybe at the <laughs> wedding. Frankly, I think what I was saw happening was him running into the water after and actually not being rescued by the kids on the beach. That's yeah. what I was hoping would happen in that situation. I hate to say it. <laughs> Yeah, but I did really enjoy Pearl's involvement in Covey and Bunny's upbringing. Mm-hmm. And I'm very glad that Charmaine wrapped up what happened to Matilda at the end. Because I was going to be very unsatisfied if we didn't find out why Matilda never came back for Covey. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But I like that we did. And yeah. I like that, I mean, I assumed that it was supposed to be, I mean, it was reminiscent of like Niagara Falls, right? I, I couldn't tell. It said it was somewhere up along the Canadian border, but I wasn't sure if it was Niagara Falls or not. I think it's got to be Niagara Falls. And, yeah. like, you really hate that she had seen this, like, big, magnificent marvel, and I'm guessing, like, I don't I, like, slipped and fell or whatever and um, mm-hmm. wasn't able to make it back to her daughter. Yeah. It was very sad. Yeah. Did it ever really say where she was headed up there? No, I think that she was just going to go travel around for a little bit, I guess. I don't know. Well, I know it said she had, like, in mind her goal of, like, there was some kind of jobs there. They weren't great pay, but it was a start. And that she was going to send for Covey or somehow get her there mm-hmm. in the future. But it, I never really figured out or if it said why she, she was said- up along the border. No, I think she was up there just to sightsee. Yeah. And I think her plan when she was up there is that she decided she was going to be a domestic worker and make her way back 
to the mm-hmm. island and get Covey. Yeah, so I I liked the whole beginning story where we found Eleanor slash Covey's childhood and upbringing, and I did like that it said that even though Mr. Lynn was horrible at gambling, he always made sure that Covey's like membership fees for the the swim club were paid because he knew that she really loved to swim and that was like her her thing that she loved to do. So I at least respected that he made sure that she could still keep doing that. Yeah. I mean, I guess. Yes. In some ways he did provide for his daughter, but the bare minimum. (laughs) Yeah. Like took care of the the child that he decided to bring into this world. Yeah. Anyway. Yeah. So other than them, we also get the family dynamic of, Byron and Benny being raised by Eleanor and Bert, which I did not make the connection about Bert until it explained what was going on. Yeah, uh, I didn't either. <laughs> you didn't either? No, until he was like, Gilbert, you know, might as well be called Bert. People shorten their names like that all the time. Yeah. I was like, oh, <laughs> I'm a fool. Yeah, but I got the sense of, like, I know that Covey had it rough as a kid and so she really wanted her children to experience everything opposite of what she experienced but Mm -hmm. I thought the pressure that she put on especially Byron for like you must I could see her like when they were younger in grade school being like you must get straight A's you must be on every extracurricular activity like having such pressure on them for excellence that if it was me, I would have been so unhappy as a kid with that kind of pressure. Yeah, it was definitely a push to be perfect. And I think it was reminiscent of Bert and Eleanor's need to sort of be perfect and not slip up and mention any part of their old life, lest they get connected to these murders. Yeah. Or this murder, if, I guess. If their kids had been like troublemakers and known around town, they might have stood out more and brought more... Um, attention to the family than um, and Gibbs and not Gibbs and Eleanor and Bert didn't want to be known yeah so yeah. I definitely understand sort of how they were I guess projecting their trauma in a way onto their kids but um, yeah it definitely was not it was not a great environment to grow up in and I think that it definitely makes sense um, I think both in the way that Byron and Benny ended up mm-hmm. like you can see like byron is this ocean scientist and he's a really attractive man and he is sort of like a model citizen and he's on tv and he's great with talking to people and yeah and so he's like sort of this yeah like this model best kid ever look he like went to grad school he's got his advanced like he's great he's thriving yeah. he talks to kids like motivational speaking yeah, and then we have Benny, who um, dresses up as characters on the weekends. <laughs> yeah, and she, like, went to culinary school in Europe and <laughs> went to art school in Arizona and, like, lives in New York now and sort of is the black sheep and comes out to her parents as bisexual and they, like, don't really accept that And um, at the start. And so it's, like, I can see how both of these um, kids, like, were sort of produced under this um, sort of stressful environment mm-hmm. yeah and we can see that the communication strain between Benny and her parents like it happened around Thanksgiving one year 
and then it just kind of got progressively worse and worse and Benny never I guess never was able to mend that uh, relationship before her dad passed and then even really before her mom passed too though she was close to I guess moving that along or getting it back to where it used to be uh, how did you feel about um, hearing that her dad that um, had been visiting New York and sort of been keeping tabs on her like this whole time and had been trying to get up the gumption to talk to her um, every time he visited New York. Like, what do you think about that whole situation? Yeah. I mean, I, I know that you wanted to feel like he's, you know, he just cares about his daughter so much and he loves her. He just doesn't know how to say what he wants to say and whatever, but it was also like, okay, she's a full grown adult. She's not a child anymore. You don't need to be keeping tabs on her by stalking her. <laughs> yeah, it was pretty much stalking. It was like, yeah, I figured out where you worked, and then I went and stood outside for a little while. It's like, yeah, I know. Um, I guess that it might have been comforting to hear that your dad really hadn't given up on you. That is nice in hindsight after he'd passed, yeah. but man alive, that's just <laughs> very, very creepy. Yeah, that reminds me of uh, newspapers. Yeah. <laughs> like, <laughs> if you've been standing outside, like newspapers. Newspapers. <laughs> uh, I hope all of you listening just realize that's from the Pink Panther. <laughs> <laughs> uh, anyway. Uh, yeah. And then we see sort of, you know, every time the author talks about this book, she says that Byron and Benny were inseparable mm-hmm. um, from a very young age, which is, I think, surprising because there's a nine-year age gap between the two of them. Yeah. Um, but we see that that sort of relationship changes after um, Benny comes out, and we see, and particularly after Eleanor's death as well, um, we see that they've sort of been estranged for a little while. Yeah, and I think a lot of that has to do with Byron being upset that Benny didn't come to their father's funeral, or at least mm-hmm. he didn't know that she came, and he didn't know why she didn't come. But mm-hmm. then that explained through the the recording and he's almost like he feels sorry that he I don't know reacted that way and almost held that grudge against her for so long yeah and that's sort of like a no one really sucks in that situation like Benny had a really good reason for not going but I think in that situation Byron um, definitely deserves sort of a little bit more communication about yeah. like why um, and he does get it in the end which is nice and they sort of mend their relationship but mm-hmm. one of the other family dynamics that I liked but was also sad was Marble and her adopted parents she noted so many times that her parents growing up were so you know loving and just did everything in the world for her but never told her that she was adopted. Mm-hmm. I personally don't agree with that. Like, especially because she had a feeling like she knew, like, I don't really look like them. I'm totally different in all of my features than them. And like, especially if she was to start to mention, like, you know, more about family history and stuff like that. And they just like totally ignored it. I don't know. I If it was me in that situation, I would have probably reacted the same way Marble did like why did you keep this from me the whole time and like uh, they even said that when she came back to London and knocked on the parents her adopted parents door they knew immediately from her face that she knew 
Yeah. Like, why would you keep that from somebody for their whole life? Like, sure, tell them when the time is right, but, like, she's 50 years old. She needs to know. (laughs) Yeah, that's a bit late. Um, (laughs) Definitely, like, by the time you're 18, you should have been told that. Yeah. Uh, And I think that that sort of plays into the next thing I want to talk about, which is identity. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I think that a big part of Marvel's life, like, she had been told that she was part of this like she fit into this family in this one way and then it sort of was a big shake up whenever she would found out that that's like not true she has a mom who's caribbean and asian and like um and it's like really shook her to her core and i think that we see a lot of different identities through this book like we see a lot of identity change with covey the way that she starts off in jamaica as covey and then moves to London and sort of just changes her last name, right? Didn't she just go by Coventa Brown? Coventina. Coventina. Is that how you say that? I was saying it Coventina. I was saying (laughs) Coventa. That yours makes more sense. It had an N in there. I think it is Coventina or maybe Coventina. I don't know. But Brown was her mother's maiden name. That's why she chose Brown. Oh, okay. So yeah, when she, so she first escaped from the horrible wedding and whatever, she gets to England and she's like, I'm going by the last name Brown so that nobody will find me. But even still, like, Coventina doesn't seem like a very common name. And so I think she almost still, like, at least it said when she was first there, like, she didn't really even talk to anybody. She didn't have any friends because she was afraid she was going to be found out. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But she does get one friend whose name is Eleanor and they are nurses together in a program in London. Mm-hmm. And then they decide after, well, was it Eleanor who wanted to be a geologist? Is that what it was? Yep. Because she had those like seashells and yeah, like Yeah. Yeah, that's right. She wanted to be a geologist and they turned it down in London. So she was like, fine, I will leave. <laughs> Yeah, like, fine. And then um, they end up getting in a train accident on the way to Scotland, right? Yeah. And sort of the paramedics and the people who find her find Eleanor's purse instead of Clementina's um, stuff. And so they just assume that she's Eleanor. And at the time, she isn't really lucid enough to explain how that's not true. Mm -hmm. And so that's just another way, like, she's just forsaking her past identities multiple times here and just sort of assuming a new one and a new name and running away from her past the whole time it seems like the scene where she's in the hospital bed and she just keeps saying eleanor or ellie Mm -hmm. and the nurses are like oh yes she would you rather be called eleanor whatever like it's almost like she fully figured out in her head like okay they haven't realized yet that i'm not eleanor now is my chance to assume a new identity and you know, start over. Yeah. It was tragic, but also, I guess, fortuitous in a way um, mm-hmm. that she yeah. was able to just sort of seize this identity. Yeah. I mean, she had all the, the documentation, the passports, the birth certificate. I don't know whatever else it was, but it was like yeah. everything she needed to make her new identity as believable as it could be. Yeah. Yeah. But I wonder how much they really looked alike. Well, she said that some of the other nurses that they'd like sort of been friendly with in London said that they look like sisters. So, mm, okay, 
it seems like it was en- close enough, um, mm-hmm. I guess. Yeah. And then we also see that eventually she runs into Gibbs. Gibbs. And I like a, I made a note that it reminded me of, have you ever seen the movie The Adjustment Bureau? No, I have not. That's a really good movie. And it's like the idea of God intervening with different people to make their paths cross. Hmm. It's really cool. And so that it kind of reminded me of that where like, did their paths, did Covey and Gibbs paths cross in England just by happenstance? Or like, were they there at the right time because, you know, of a divine intervention or something or, or whatever, because at this point, Gibbs thinks that Covey has already died. And then he's like, I know that girl right there, but she's supposed (laughs) to be dead. (laughs) Yeah. And then he assumes a new identity too, which I like that even though it's been like five years, he still had that strong a connection that he like didn't hesitate to completely change his identity too and start over with her. Yeah, they very much so chose chose each other repeatedly um, mm-hmm. in a way that's very I don't very I don't want to say motivational but very aspirational I guess. Yeah, um, but it's also very unlikely because they met when they were still in high school. Yeah, and I don't know. It's just not very common to be with your high school sweetheart in the end yeah i mean i think some of the people who went to our high school have ended up together well yeah dating together but that's a small percentage of marriages happen from people who that yes 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 yeah i think another character that i really enjoyed um the identity of was benny because Mm -hmm. as we mentioned like she was sort of the black sheep of the family in many many ways not only like in what she chose to do but so was lighter skinned than like her brother mm-hmm. and so she like at times they wouldn't fit in together like there was that little story where she was at the grocery store and then um like some lady went up to her some random lady went up and started talking to her and then um byron came by and took her away and she like sort of got a mean look from the lady and it's just yeah. uh, it's clear that she's like part of this family this very big multicultural family and that's a big part of her identity and at no point in time is she ever unsure of who she is that's like i think one of the things i like most about benny and something that um i don't know i guess i sort of related to a lot with her like the sort of impulse to go study some culinary stuff and then go do something else for a little while yeah <laughs> this whole time like uh it seems like she's very strong in her identity and who she is and if you're not okay with it that's fine but she's not going to change who she is for you yeah. and when she first comes out like her mom is like well can't you just be like I don't, like a little bit better about it can't you just like not talk about this and you know we just won't we'll ignore it and she's like well no mom like this is who I am I really liked that I, I respect- liked Benny a lot yeah I guess something else that I really liked, we do see this in this theme of being in charge of your own destiny. We see that a lot with Benny, which is just like, this is what I'm going to do now. But something that I really liked about this story is the way that the author sort of writes about how the stories that your family tells you about who you are and the ones that they omit, importantly, um, sort of shape you as well. And so, you know, we sort of see that with the omission of Covey's entire life from like hidden from her kids. Yeah. Um, And I just really like the way that she like brings in 
Um, and this is a quote from one of her interviews that she said, like, omission has presence as well. So it's not just what you're told. It's also what you're not told yeah. um, that shapes who you are. Mm-hmm. And I guess her her kids, Byron and Benny, probably didn't question much about either of their parents' upbringing because they were told that they both came from an orphanage. So yeah. they just assumed, like, well, my parents don't really know their families, so there's not much to talk about. Yeah. And there was that time when Byron was pretty sure that he heard um, Bert call Eleanor Covey. Mm-hmm. And he was like, his brain was just like, oh, yeah, I've heard that wrong. That must have just been lovey. And then he was like, well, that doesn't make sense at all. <laughs> and so it's just like it puts a lot of stuff that you sort of questioned when you were younger, but then sort of view through new light with this, you know, additional information that you get. Yeah. One part of like this theme also was one of the times when Covey had to decide to leave her life behind was when she conceived the first child, Matilda, who she named after her mom. And it just, it made it seem like it was such a hard decision for Covey. But to me, it seemed like the, the help group that she went to, really made her feel guilty like you're you know you are in the lower class you're not going to be able to provide for this baby because you are either black uneducated or you're not going to be able to find employment or you're not going to be able to provide so you should just give the baby to us because we'll make sure that that the baby goes to a loving family and that like they almost had to like tear the baby away from her so I thought that this was like the ultimate guilt trip of making women give their babies that they didn't want to give up because of their social status. Yeah. Feel really sad for, for Covey. Yeah. She was forced into all aspects of that situation because, you know, she was assaulted by her boss and that's how she ended up pregnant in the first place. And then I guess to me, um, it's not really guilting women. You know, she shows up back in London and this stranger recognizes that she's pregnant and she's like, you look like you can't really handle this. Like, go to this other place that we know about. Yeah, which and, rude. <laughs> to yeah, first of all, rude. Yeah, <laughs> who's to say I'm pregnant? Um, but also, it seems to me that they were... Um, it's less guilting them, and it's more like a threat of you and this baby will not survive if you try to take this on yourself. And so it's more of a coercion and definitely them taking advantage of these women um, who are in these vulnerable situations. I think to me by saying guilting women um, makes it seem like they should be guilty for something but um, oh, I didn't that way. That's just I guess how I see it is like them being like you should be guilty for this thing and um, to me they would believe it and I guess that those nuns like- did. Like that the nuns made them feel like they weren't deserving of having this baby and that they needed to give it to somebody else. Yeah. Um, I guess to me it was more like neither neither of you will survive. It was more like a threat of, it was more hmm. threatening and more, uh, yeah, definitely <laughs> not a good situation to be in. I thought it was a little sketchy how Marble's adopted parents even got her it sounded like you know they paid all the right money and they like Mm -hmm. did some extra things over here and over there to make sure that they got a baby and I don't know that seemed a little sketchy like cheating the system yeah 
it doesn't seem right. But I also know that adoption is like a really hard process. So and I don't even I have no idea what it was like in the 60s. Yeah, who knows? <laughs> or the 70s. But then, but then it said later on that there were some like articles that came out that exposed this this I don't know, help group of nuns, whatever, that was like shedding light on how they basically stole babies from these women and told them like you are not deserving. You can't, you'll die if you try to, you know, <laughs> take yep. it on your own. And, and that's when Eleanor is like, maybe my baby's still out there or, you know, yeah. but this is also very reminiscent of our current crisis pregnancy centers that there are around, particularly in the Southern States, because a lot of them have these ads out that sort of make it seem like they'll help you with any sort of decision that you want to make, but then they more or less coerce you into either having the baby and keeping it yourself or putting the baby up for adoption. Yeah. Like, that's what, when we, I was reading that, that's what it felt like a commentary to me on. It was like, this is sort of still happening. Yeah. And we see it under this very bad light in this one situation. And we should also sort of see it in a very similar way mm-hmm. um, now. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. Nothing really changes with women. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I hate to see it. I guess one other point that I'd like to tie into the idea of identity is that we do see a lot about race in this novel, particularly mm-hmm. Byron. He, We see several times that he's had instances with racism, particularly like when he's getting pulled over by cops four times a year and that he's just very hyper aware when he's out in public that he is a large black man in Southern California and compared to like Benny who because she has lighter skin never gets pulled over even though she's not a good driver and different things like that but I mean I think race really does tie into identity for most people and so there was a lot of you know, instances of race and racism throughout the novel that I thought tied in well to identity too. Yeah, it was really highlighting that despite everything he's ever done, you know, he's this big name ocean scientist. Mm-hmm. When he's driving around, um, he has to drive a lower model car than he would like. And right. um, essentially, he's just boiled down to this one identity, which is black man. Yeah. We also see, I also really liked that his story with that was mirrored in his girlfriend, um, girlfriend's Mm -hmm. nephew. Mm -hmm. Um, And sort of that's the reason why she missed his mom's funeral was a very similar situation in which they had gotten pulled over and her nephew ended up arrested. And um, I like that parallel a lot too. Yeah, I think it made going into that monologue made it easy for me or easier for me as a white woman to really sort of gain a better understanding of what might go through your head in that situation. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Reading like a first person perspective of it was helpful. I think. Yeah. So I guess to, to wrap up the ending of the book. So the whole, the whole book is revolving around this recording that Eleanor has left for her children Mm -hmm. and lawyer what would you think if your mom did this, like left a recording for you and your siblings? <laughs> turns out you knew nothing about her life before raising you and your siblings. I guess my question in return to you is, do you really think that you know that much about your mom's life before she was your mom? Not really, actually. Like I know yeah. she traveled here and there quite a bit. Like she's told me stories of traveling to 
you know, Germany and she woke up and the Berlin Wall was being torn down and like she mm-hmm. traveled to Sri Lanka for a semester and stuff like that. But not really. I mean, I know her siblings and like my grandma, but I really don't know anything about my grandfather on my mom's side. Yeah. You, yeah, you asked me this question, and my only thought is I would not be surprised. I would be surprised if my mom left a recording. That would be surprising. <laughs> the fact that she had this whole other life would not really be surprising. Um, like, I think the easiest example of this is when I wanted to name one of our cats Fred, and my mom was just like, absolutely not. And she provided zero explanation. And then my Aunt Petunia came into town one day and I was like, yeah, I wanted to name this cat Fred. And Aunt Nan just like stopped and was like, no, you can't name that cat Fred. And I was like, I don't know what's going on with Fred in this family, but there is clearly a juicy story I'm not getting here. Yeah, I like I I don't think I. Yeah, again, I know that she like went to grad school for biology for a little while. I know that she played basketball in high school. You know, I know these facts. Um, Yeah. But I don't really know that much about what my mom's life was like. So Yeah. Yeah. Same. Yeah. I know, like, like you said, I know facts and I know, like, little stories here and there that she's told me. But as far as, like, where she was brought up and for how long before they moved to Florida and, and that kind of stuff, like, I don't know. Yeah. Though I would be very surprised if my mom left a story like, oh, yeah, I ran away from a foreign island and assumed a new identity. <laughs> Yeah, I guess that would be a little bit dramatic for either of our mothers. Yeah, something wild like that. (laughs) That would be crazy. And then I guess we should just, yeah, talk about the very end of this book um, where we see all three of these siblings brought together by their mother and her lawyer slash lover. And Bunny, who is Benedetta Sr. Not Sr., but who Benny is named after. I'm just going to call Bunny. Bunny helps facilitate a lot of those meetings and bringing everybody together and tying all the pieces together, too. Yeah, it really broke my heart when Covey died before she could see Bunny again for like a like an actual sit down and catch up. But I did really like it felt very full circle and very like neat and tied up and satisfying that she as Edda, this long distance swimmer was taking Covey's children around to meet Lynn and Pearl and mm-hmm. visit the island. And yeah, Can you I, I really enjoyed that. That Etta swam three miles out into the middle of the ocean when they decided to dispose of the rest of the black cake at like 70 something years old. She's swimming three miles out into the ocean. <laughs> it's really incredible. And for a great cause. I loved about this book was that there were like undertones of conservationism. Yeah. Left I- and right. <laughs> I could see you being like, yes. (laughs) Yeah. I was like, Andy, are you sure that you picked this book and I didn't pick this book? I could see that this was going to be very, like, touching for you. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, I was trying to describe it to my friends because we were 40 pages in and I texted all of my friends and I was like, look, you guys have to read this book. (laughs) And then we got to the end and I was like, look, I'm doubling down on this. And then I was like, here's seven different facets about this book that you guys are going to like, starting with ocean scientists and ending with like, <laughs> I, like family stories, you know, it's very great all over. Mm-hmm. And I'm glad that at the end, Marble came back with Benny and Byron and they, sh- they all shared the cake together. Like, like Eleanor said, you know, you'll know when it's time mm-hmm. and they all shared it together. But I did read that, the black cake traditionally when you have it uh, you know say around christmas 
Like you share it at Christmas dinner, but then if you don't finish it all, you, you take a little sliver and just keep eating it day after day until it's gone. Like the Mm -hmm. little sliver. And anyway, so they, you know, they shared whatever they wanted to eat of the cake. And then it said that they took what was left, crumbled it up with Etta Pringle and like disposed of it in the sea. And that to me almost felt like they were spreading her ashes, even though it was a cake. No, they also spread her ashes then though, too. Oh, they, they did? Yeah. They dug up their father's ashes and oh, yeah. um, their mother's, uh, they put them together and then they sprinkled them out in the ocean. Okay. Yeah, I do remember that. It was a very satisfying ending. And I also liked that we found out who killed little man because. Me too. <laughs> yeah. I think the entire time of the story, I think we both had different opinions on who had actually killed little man. And for the, for a good part of it, um, we both thought Pearl. I think you probably thought Pearl longer than I did. I thought Pearl until the very end because she made those icing flowers in lilac. I figured that was that they she had added something to the icing to make it poison. Yeah, I had always figured that Pearl's intent was definitely going to be poison. Um, <laughs> but at one point in time, I switched and thought that it had to have been Covey. And that's how she was able to just sort of dash out so quickly from the wedding and wasn't super surprised in any way Mm -hmm. um but i yeah i definitely thought pearl for the longest time but But then i was neither yeah it was neither of them and i loved the way that wilkerson sort of revealed it when she was describing how covey was experiencing this moment at the wedding and little man was collapsing and everyone who she thought was a suspect was turned and looked at little man watching him dying except for one person who was instead looking at Covey who was of course Bunny who had actually poisoned him with the champagne and then she sort of describes the whole switch off with the glasses and yeah it was just very well done well written Um, yeah I really liked that we found out at the end who actually did it yeah great incredible I thought, too, like, since I've listened to so much true crime documentaries, mostly, I was like, oh, but she would have had fingerprints on the glass. But it was, you know, in the 60s, they probably didn't keep any DNA and that kind of stuff. Okay, but didn't know about DNA in the 60s like this? Like, oh, okay, we know about DNA. That's not what I mean. I mean, they're like, <laughs> we didn't have the technology to right. Nobody analyze else. it. Would have been like, oh, let's save this champagne glass in case we get a fingerprint off of it. <laughs> yeah. Um, I, yeah, it was a lot easier to get away with murder in the older days. Yeah. <laughs> but yes, and and at the end, I thought it was pretty cool too that her um, that Byron and Benny asked Etta, who's Bunny, do you think Covey did it at the end? Like, what do you really think happened? And she's just like, nope, I don't think she did it because she actually did it. Yeah. <laughs> But she took that to the grave. (laughs) Yeah, it was like the ultimate love and trust between the two of them. Just keeping that secret between them. I loved it. Yeah. Uh, Should we rate this book? Yeah. What, I mean, is it any, I mean, obviously we should do it out of black cakes, right? Yeah. Yeah. I I think we're both going to say five out of five. Yeah, definitely five. If I could give it like a five and a half, I would. Honestly, let's put it out of the scale. Five and a half. Five and a half. Okay, agreed. I can't believe that this was her first novel. I thought it was so well written. Yeah. Truly incredible. I cannot recommend this book more. Um, I didn't realize that it was going to have all the aspects of like 
ocean and marine life and all that. But the more I was reading of it, I was like, I could just see Allie like loving this book right now. (laughs) (laughs) Truly, truly incredible. Yeah, I didn't know it was going to have any of that part in it when I picked it. (laughs) Well, great choice. Yeah. Everybody let us know if you read it. And if you didn't, we hope that this encourages you to read it because it's really good. And then let us I hope you didn't listen to this. I got to be honest, because we just told you everything. This has been probably one of my favorites that we've covered. Yeah. So our next short story is actually going to be next week. So the next one is Scroll Through the Weapons by Kevin Wilson. And then Allie is picking our next book. Yes. And I was pretty close to picking um, the book Yinka Where's Your Husband by Lizzie Blackburn. Lizzie Demolola Blackburn, which is actually recommended by uh, Wilkerson in an interview that I <laughs> was <Okay>. listening to. <laughs> um, I think I will reserve the right to do that later because what I like to do in the summer is read a Sarah Dessen book or two, and it's now going to be the summer in the month of June, and so I think it's fitting for us to read one of her um, novels, even though it's more geared towards the teens. Um, just because we bonded over that a lot as kids. So I think summertime, the two of us were reading the Sarah Dessen, and I think that we should revisit The Truth About Forever, which is, I think, both of our favorite ones. Um, yeah, but and it's I, long since I've read it, I don't really remember anything about it. So I'm yeah. to read it. <laughs> yes, and I'm always excited to read it. I have it on my bookshelf. Don't even have to go get it. <laughs> I do. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so get those copies of the books uh, from your local libraries if you can, um, and join us as we talk about them. Yeah, and happy reading. Thanks for joining us on this episode of Marianne and Wanda. We would love to hear your feedback and if you have any books or topics for us to review. You can reach us at Marianne and Wanda Podcast on Instagram or send us an email at Marianne and Wanda Podcast at gmail.com. Talk to you later. Bye. Bye.